reminds me of a piano playing in the background because I know that's sort of the classical music sometimes you hear when you're in the when you're in the shop. So compared to me, who speaks quickly and I can be uh, you know rattling off all kinds of crazy historical information, this is going to be a nice, soothing, enjoyable, relaxing conversation as we uh, try to imagine you know some of these old books uh, and these antiquarian items that we're going to be talking about tonight. So so William, uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Oh, well, I was a um, classics major in college and then um, in graduate school, ancient history. And uh, just always loved books. Books were in our family and uh, started buying them just uh, occasionally and bought more and bought more. And then uh, was introduced to um, old books to uh, my school. I was introduced to um, Blackwell's in Oxford and Otto Rasmus in Eastbound, Germany. So I could actually see books that I had studied, and I could buy them uh, with enough money, uh, the actual books that were, I thought, uh, unavailable. So I started buying those, and I was introduced to the world of uh, antique books, antiquarian books, and just new books in general. And, uh, well, you, you, haven't, well, you haven't mentioned anything about selling these books. I mean, huh? you had to make some money to keep on buying, correct? Well, yeah, I've done that part. Yes, I take one here. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, we gotta, you know, you gotta enjoy capitalism on this show. So you gotta tell us about the selling the books too. Well, yeah, my first store was just the hallway in an antique store. It was only six feet wide, and uh, I had shelves on either side. And uh, I just started uh, putting things that I bought on the shelves and uh, and started selling them. It was um, enthralling. I I got to a bigger store, then a bigger store, and. Uh, into a bigger city and uh, just got bigger and bigger and uh, sold more and more and bought more and more. And I and still do that today. I buy uh, quite a bit. Now, your source is all over the United right. States, or do you have? Are is there a network of antiquariums that communicate? The audience would probably be interested in how is it you get the latest find. Uh, uh, your inbox is just full of messages. Hey, come come buy this. Come buy that. There, there are quite a few. Well, and when I got started, there wasn't no internet, so it was all paper, and it was a laborious process. Everything was very, very slow. You had to, uh, if you wanted a book, you had to come to a book dealer and have him take the information, fill out a form. He would advertise that you wanted that book to the country, and then someone else in another part of the country would respond. It would take months sometimes to get a book, but now it's instantaneous. But in, and now it, it, communication seems. There's, there are a number of book dealer organizations. There's... Um, you know what, I'm going to jump in here, William, because I wanted to read some of your bio. And I'm taking this from the oldfloridabookshop.com, which is your website. And before I read some of your bio, um, I want to point out that, you know, I'm a lover of these old antiquarian texts because this is what we talk about on statutes and stories, these primary sources. So uh, I want to make sure everyone gets an idea of who we're talking to on the phone tonight because William is a little um, modest. So, what, so I'm saying to Manny, listen to you hear this bio. So he's a member of the Rofont Club in Cleveland. Uh, he's a member of the History Miami Museum. He's a member of the Florida Bibliophile Society, and we'll ask you about some of these later at the end of the hour. The Ephemera Society of America, and we're going to ask him what ephemera is. The Antiquarian Booksellers of America, and the International League of Booksellers. And um, you are the president of the Florida Antiquarian Booksellers Association. So, so the buck stops here. We've got book royalty <laughs> that's on the phone with us. No, <laughs> yeah, the, the book stops here. <laughs> so, 
William might cut you off. We were asking you about um, you know some of the organizations and how you wind up selling the books today versus how you did it when you first started in 1978. Yeah, now there's there's the uh, Antiquarian Bookseller Association of America, which is the higher echelon of uh, book dealers, and then there are other organizations, and there are there are services that list books from multiple dealers. So you can go to a site like Biblio.com and see hundreds of different dealers, maybe thousands of different dealers, with all of their stock online. So if you're looking for anyway, in our time, first edition, uh, dust jacket, you can put all that information in and then you'll get several listings. So this dealer in Oakland, California has it, some in Maine has it. These are the, this is the price and you can compare prices and compare uh, condition and, and things of that nature. So there are many variables involved, but the new search engines allow you to put all those variables in. So you can, instead of searching just for Hemingway, you can now search for the, obviously the title, whether it has a dust jacket, whether it's first edition, the exact year, the exact publisher, and you can narrow things down so your search is fruitful. In the past, you would look for something. Even if you look for Hemingway in our time, you would get 3,000 um, hits with the thing being good. But now it's, it's pretty good. You can pretty much find what you want. I'm going to point out to the listeners that, you know, this show, which we do every week, and people hear it three ways. You can hear it through listening to us live, which is tonight, Monday. You can podcast it, which is the WSQF website. Or you can read about a lot of the topics we talk about on the Statutes and Stories website, which is the website that blogs about American history with, with, um, with primary sources. And uh, people will remember from about a year ago, we did this phenomenal exhibit at Nova Southeastern University where we brought in uh, one of Hamilton's actual books with Hamilton's signature in it, and we brought in a lot of materials were put on display from William Croissant's collection. So, William, I'm going to ask you about some of your items that you were lending out, you were nice enough to loan to the university for that Hamilton display. And that's another reason why we have William on tonight is because, you know, Hamilton is back in town after a year. So uh, one in particular I'm going to ask you about is a copy of, I think it was the Acts of the Second Congress, William, and it, was, it had a George Washington signature in it. Yeah, yeah. So the signature was clipped from, an, from a, a letter that Washington wrote to someone probably in the 18th century. Uh, and here's it to the book uh, inside cover. Um, so the signature is interesting. Also, the book is very rare because it's, um, well, it's not available other than maybe one or two copies. So um, it's, it's sort of thrilling to have Washington's signature, even though it's detached from the original letter. But in the 18th and even 19th century, people would get a letter from someone of import, and they would clip the signature off and throw the letter away, which was <laughs> kind of strange, but that's how it was done. In, in any case, in this case, the letter ended up in, in the University of Virginia's library, so you can see the letter, and you can see that the signature has been, uh, been cut off. That's interesting. You know what, I'm going to track that down because I'm always curious. Do you know the time frame of the letter? Obviously, it was before Washington died in 1799, but do you know the, the content or the date of that particular Washington letter? Not a fan, but I, I have it written down. I mean, is it a letter that Washington actually wrote, or is it a letter that Alexander Hamilton wrote that Washington signed? <laughs> no, 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 it's written by Washington. Yeah, because... Uh, Adam informed us uh, in our audience that uh, Hamilton was uh, quite often writing uh, writing these speeches and letters. I guess maybe not personal letters. That's that's probably the difference. It is uh, it's true that uh, Hamilton wrote a, a lot of the policies that uh, that Washington would would batter about publicly. Correct, Adam. Absolutely. So 
I'm going to say this is in all seriousness. Hamilton had various names. They referred to him as the Little Lion during the Revolutionary War. But he was also referred to as the pen of the Revolutionary War. So what does that mean? If Hamilton is the pen of the Revolutionary War, he was writing for the commander-in-chief. He was in charge of his correspondence along with others that were in his command staff. But uh, you know, that was a compliment to Hamilton that Washington trusted him so much. And you know, we can joke about the pen is mightier than the sword, and we could probably spend lots of time debating that. But um, you know, that's exactly right, Manny, that uh, you know, Hamilton was in charge and very active with the correspondence. So if it was a personal letter from Washington to you know, a family member, then Hamilton probably wasn't involved in that. But if it was a letter going to a governor or to another uh, state legislature or to you know, other commanding generals and others, uh, you know, that was an important political letter or instructions to the army, chances are, at least during the Revolutionary War, that Hamilton was writing that for Washington. Now, the question would be, would William come across a document like that, or is that even on your radar screen? I'm sorry, what's the question? What I yeah, uh, uh, would you actually be able to uh, identify a document that was written by Hamilton that was actually spoken by Washington? Is that something that, uh, or did, just, did Adam just come up with a eureka moment for your, biz- for your industry? What's it go? What's it go for these days? A copy of the federal. How many? Two thousand. Yeah. Three hundred thousand. You said. Two hundred thousand. Yeah. Whoa. And of course, that's going to be the first edition when it was yes. first published. And uh, Mac, I'm pointing out to you that I think over the over the last year or so, I've probably mentioned it at least once because I have a link to it on the Statutes and Stories website. But the copy of the Federalist Papers that was mailed by Hamilton's wife, so that's Eliza, she mailed a copy to her sister, to Angelica, who at the time was living in London. And Angelica uh, gave it to Jefferson because Angelica was in, in Paris. And I said London, but it was in Paris. And Jefferson was in Paris, so it was in Paris. So what's the point? The point is that there was a copy of the Federalist Papers that has Angelica and and Eliza's signatures on it, and because it says to Angelica from your sister, and then uh, you know Eliza gave it to Jefferson so he could read the Federalist Papers. So I have a link to it because I think it's such a phenomenal document, uh, and it's of course at the Library of Congress. But I put a link to the picture so you can see it, and that also gets to a point of these antiquarian books. And I'm going to ask William what an antiquarian. What's your definition of an antiquarian book? But it's not just the book. It's not just the age of the book. It's also how it was written, and sometimes what's inscribed in the book. So uh, give me your definition of what an antiquarian book is. Yes, it's a very vague. It's, it's hard to define. Etymologically, it just implies old and rare. But old is not the criterion for an antiquarian book. You can have a, a 16th century commentary on a commentary on a commentary on the Bible. And it has very little value, but you can have a, a 1926 Hemingway this was thirty thousand dollars. So, inquiry uh, yeah, books are things that are desired. I guess that's what it comes down to. You can have something that's fairly common, but if it's if it's a great demand, the price goes up. So, for example, you can have a uh, Abraham Lincoln signature. Lincoln signed more documents than any other president because he had to sign every field promotions in the Civil War for, for the military, and as well as, as well as his other signatures, and some people even 
suggested he could not possibly sign so many documents, but, but he did. And his documents always go for thousands of dollars regardless. Whereas you, you, if you look for a document by his predecessor, Franklin Pierce, you can get one for a couple hundred dollars easily. No one really wants them. <laughs> and they're much, much, much more scarce. But if you, if you uh, had your choice of uh, Franklin Pierce, which is much rarer, or uh, Benjamin Franklin, I mean, uh, um, Abraham Lincoln, what, what would you take? Obviously, I think. <laughs> Have you had any Lincolns come through your shop? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're not uncommon. I, I get them fairly common. I just sold one to the uh, Abraham Lincoln Library. Well, you have to tell me so I can look at it. I want to, I want to come down and look at some of these things. Oh, sorry. I sold it. Was a, it was a note that Lincoln uh, had written uh, uh, recommending uh, one of his um, friends as a postmaster. And, uh, oh, those are pretty cool. Those uh, kind of yeah. personal moments. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the library had other documents relating to this fellow, and uh, so they wanted that, that document as well, which is nice. Well, let me but go his, back to the... I'm sorry, go ahead. But again, his military... Uh, his signature is, is not uncommon. It's just... It's antiquarian because it's, it's um, desired, really, because people want it. So... That's, well, that's why the term is vague. It's a... Uh, you can have a you can have a Stephen King limited signed book published this week that's considered the antiquarian because because of that it's desirable. So it doesn't necessarily mean antique. Is antique historically it has to be a hundred years old to qualify as an antique? So antiquarian doesn't yeah. have to be antique. No, not technically. I mean the word implies it does, but certainly doesn't because there are, there are antiquarian book dealers that specialize in 20th century literature. So what does that tell you? I mean, that's all they sell. So in, in my case, I'm not interested in the recent stuff. I'm interested in the older stuff. So I'm going to ask yeah. you to compare, and I'm going to point out to people, if, if it came down to the Hamilton exhibit, we had antiquarian books on display. In fact, one of the books we had was published by the King's publisher. This is King George III, because it was the Stamp Act. And I want to ask you, William, to describe in only a way that you can uh, what, what characterizes some of these old books in terms of the binding and in terms of features that you would not see in a modern book from today, which you would... See, you know, especially if it was on the high end of a of a maybe a luxury book or a special book from that time period in the 17th, 16th centuries. 17th century. Well, number one would be the paper. Uh, 17th century, 18th century, early 19th century paper was made out of rags, so um, cotton, linen. There were even there was even an occupation uh, called rag picker. People, their occupation was going around and picking up rags, buying buying bits of pieces of bread, those would be made into paper. Um, and so that paper has a texture to it that's um, sumptuous, really. About 1840 or so, um, pulp paper was discovered. It was discovered that you could make paper much more cheaply and with unlimited resources out of wood pulp. So now all paper we get is made from trees. I mean, they grind up well, primarily pine trees and make them into paper, because that paper is it's dead compared to the paper uh, of the uh, 18th and early centuries. It's uh, not the same thing. Paper from the uh, 18th century has a texture to it. You can feel it. It has a thickness. It's almost like a, a flat piece of, of uh, cotton. And then the, another uh, feature of, of 18th century you know, uh, paper is it's, it's, it's printed with type. So 
Gloria, T H E space. And then all these things, all, every, every letter has to go in and be scratched. And then they would take that, that uh, plate and they would press that into the paper. So when it pressed into the paper, it would, it would leave a texture. You could feel the indentation on both sides of the paper where the, the uh, letters actually bit into the paper. If you feel a modern book today, it's flat. You feel nothing. It's just the, the letters that are printed on a piece of paper. Earlier, it was, a, it was a work of art. It was, a, it was something that had a texture to it, if you know what I mean. If you, if you feel that paper, it's, um, it's almost alive. It's strange. That's probably the biggest difference. The other, the other problem is, um, that happened was when they invented pulp paper, they didn't realize it was acidic. So um, they started making, uh, in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, 80s, up to the 1910 or so, everything out of, they could out of pulp because it was so inexpensive. And, it was unlimited uh, resources as far as the trees went, but they came to realize that pulp paper was acidic. So, um, what would happen after a matter of decades, the paper would start eating itself and turn brown. And uh, if you see books from the 1890s, uh, 1910, many, many times they're, they're just in shambles. The paper's very brittle, very brown, falling apart, literally, I mean, in pieces. Whereas if you look at the book from 19th century, early 19th century, and earlier, they're still, the paper's still fine. Which, to and make the point, the old, on, of course. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but the older books held up better because they were not made with the pulp. They were made with the rag paper as opposed to the, right. Right. the, wood, the wood pulp. Um, so, so you talked about the paper. We just spoke about paper for five minutes, but also the binding and uh, you know, some of the other features that you'd see on some of these older books from the 18th century, 17th century. Well, I, in my opinion, the best binding is vellum. That's a, a, a highly processed uh, calfskin, typically. But it's um, almost uh, indestructible. The only thing that can destroy it is water. But it, you can get... I have books from the 15th century that are... If you look at them, they're hard to believe, but they're, they're in excellent condition. There's, there's the paper's fine, the binding's fine. There's no real order at all. Um, but there were other kinds of binding as well. There, there were... Um, Various kinds of leather, just ordinary leather, and then it's what they call Morocco leather, which was a typical goatskin. So, within the world of bindings, uh, some were good and some were bad. Vellum was the best, in my opinion, but some were, um, again, some could be acidic and, and uh, fall apart. It was typical mostly of law books, I think, in the 19th century. But um, it's an entire study, the study of bindings, that's a, that's a, a whole different world, but there's volumes and volumes written on the different kinds of bindings and different processes. Yeah. And some are exquisite. Some are um, works of art. They're artifacts. They're uh, inlaid leather, different kinds. Some have uh, portraits um, placed in them. Some are uh, the inside of the covers all in um, leather and, and different colors of leather laid in. They're um, let me, let me jump in real quick. Um, so we're talking about the binding, but I'm going to throw out some terms that people who are listening may never have heard before. But I'm going to ask you what marbling is when we talk about some of these antiquarian books. And I'm also going to ask you about some of the features, that, and you're beginning to describe them. So I probably shouldn't have interrupted you. But, uh, no, okay. but so, people, so, so some of the terms, I want to hear about marbling. And um, I, I think we should also talk about what can be done on the sides of the paper. And some of these things are just marvelous. But, but go ahead. Well, marbling is uh, simply taking uh, it's a 
a vat of water, and they place um, different colored paints on the top of that water. They, they have some oil-based in them, I'm guessing, and so they float atop the water. So you have this, this uh, sheet of colors. And then the marbles will take uh, uh, an instrument, a comb or some or a feather or anything, and they will um, uh, make the colors into some pattern. And sometimes they're again they're, they can be really thrilling. They can be they look like uh, peacock feathers or, or um, just look at these are all different colors mixed together. So it's a, it's, a, it's again it's a thrilling thing. Some are there, but some, some are really good. And there's, there are, again, treatises written on the process and how it's been uh, done in the ages. But it's, it's simply a matter of, well, it's not simply, but it's a matter of um, taking that paper on top of that, that painting and taking that, that paint off of the water. I'm going to jump in again to point out that if you go to William's Bookshop online, oldfloridabookshopalloneword.com, you can see some of these examples. And I also have some on statutesandstories.com where people can look at some of these old books. So the point is, not only is it, you know, if, if you've read a copy of Shakespeare in your history class or in your literature class in high school, you know, that's a modern copy and you read Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. But if you get a copy from contemporaneous when Shakespeare was writing or in that time frame, <laughs> right? It's, it's a whole different book. Like you're yeah, not just, I'm joking that you're not just buying the book for the writing of Shakespeare. You're buying the book sometimes for the binding, for the artistry that goes in. And sometimes you have engravings and the illustrations and some of the books that have maps. The map could be worth more than sometimes it depends upon what the map is and how old it is. So this is all, what I'm trying to point out that uh, what I've learned from William over the years is that some of these books, um, you know, they have a life of their own. You described them as sumptuous, but you talked about marbling. So what are some of the other features that you might see with the gilding? What is the gilding on some of the books? Yeah, some books are uh, gilded on the page edges. Some are just the top edge gilt to keep, to keep them clean, sort of. So it seals the top, so it's got those glances, and others are, are uh, gilded on uh, all three edges. Some books are... Uh, Painted on the foredge, and the foredge is, is the part that you would open some to which is looking at the book. So, uh, what they would do um, in the 18th, 17th century is um, they would take that book, they would um, fan it out and hold it, and then they would paint a picture on it. And when they closed the book, the picture would disappear, they just did a gilt edge. But if you, if you were clever enough or to know that it was a forage painted, you would, if you fanned it, as soon as you fanned it, you'd get this glorious uh, uh, painting that would just appear suddenly. If you, you know what I mean? It's, it's difficult to, to describe it. It was like an animation of a cartoon. Uh, it doesn't move, which, but it, when you, if you take a book and, and um, bend the pages sort of on the forage so, they, so they're not, the gilt doesn't show anymore. If it is gilded on the forage, which it would be, then that suddenly instead of the, the gilding, you see an image. It could be something appropriate to the book. It could be uh, uh, the, the author's home or, uh, or something that's described in the book, but it's, uh, it's cool. And that's in another totally different world. They're called um, forage painted books, and people collect only that. And it's I'm trying to repeat that again. What's the word? F-O-R-E, one word, and E-D-G-E, painted books. They're... Uh, you can see them online. There's, again, with any other thing in the book world, there are some good ones and there are some bad ones. But the good ones are really thrilling. I mean, we have one of a, 
um, angels and devils uh, causing this kind of I asked you earlier, or maybe it was Mac asking about the Federalist Papers, and you pointed out that they can go if it's the first edition for $200,000, and of course the Federalist Papers is one of the most important documents or books in American governmental history. But I'm wondering, what other, on the very high end, have you seen come through the shop, particularly relating to the period that we talk about during the show, which is the Revolutionary Period or the early Federalist period in the 1780s, 1790s? What from that time period has come through the shop over the years? Madison autographs and Madison documents. We have a Benjamin Franklin document, which is very rare. He was the president of the Pennsylvania Commonwealth at the time. And for each land was granted by the government of Pennsylvania for typically for veterans of the Revolutionary War. He signed um, the document, and it's kind of strange because the document describes the, the land that's given to the soldiers um, from the, the, the giant oak tree near the such and such river, 300 feet over to, to a, a white oak tree, and then uh, 400 feet northwest to another tree. So for the lawyers that are listening, those are referred to as legal um, meets and bounds because they didn't have the grids, they didn't have a number system, but they're describing it geographically of where the land was located. Yeah. And a yeah, little, bit, yeah. little bit of trivia for people that, uh, as you mentioned, at the time, Benjamin Franklin was the president. People don't realize that the president, that's what they refer to his title, of the Assembly of, of Pennsylvania. So he's basically the governor at the time, and that was the, during the colonial, or the, I'm sorry, the post-colonial that was after the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Well, there is a there is a there is a story about the origins of meets and bounds, and it goes it dates back to the uh, Admiral uh, Bradford days where people were giving plots of land, and over a course of a very short time, they they made an observation that people were coming late to the to church on Sunday, and it turns out to be the somewhat uh, robust people like myself, or the obese ones, were sitting in the back, and the very fit and trim were sitting in the front. And the the fat boys were coming very late, so there was a complaint about that, and people were being, you know, uh, somewhat annoyed about this uh, opinion. So they started looking into it, and it turns out that the same people who were late to mass were also underperforming in agriculture, in their livestock, and in their farming. And the and the hustle and bustle prompt people's lands were producing more food, and yet everybody was eating in common, and and that's when people realized that this collective idea, this compact, was no longer working. So they divided up all the properties and said, "Okay, you're now going to have your uh, real estate, and you're to meet your obligation, and you're bound by your neighbor." And people had to produce, and based on how much they produced, was how much they were actually going to eat and capitalism good old capitalism yes and that's was the origins of meets and bounds meet your obligations and you're bound by your neighbor so i don't know what truth there is to that i would love for you all to correct me if i'm wrong or research it and expound on it but that's the story i've always understood in real estate because i was uh, you know i'm in i'm in real estate per se i'm uh, you know licensed in real estate in our family actually develops so I had an interest in the history of, of how legal descriptions to describe properties. Um, I always uh, want to know how these things started. How is it that we define real estate per se 
in the in the in the legal description, and that was a story uh, told to me by real estate uh, uh, professors and, and students of it about meets and bounds. So I thought I'd just throw that out here here on WSQF Blink Radio. I will have to look into it, Manny, and I don't. Uh, I don't doubt that's the case. Um, I will point out to you that there's a story now that's being shown. It's a two-part series, which we talked about, I think, two weeks ago on the History Channel about Washington. So I'm going to throw out to people who are listening. Um, you know, what was Washington's occupation before he became involved with the French and Indian War in 1770? Let's see, 1767, I think, is when it started. Uh, but uh, what was his occupation? And this relates to what we're talking about, coincidentally. Uh, so does anyone want to answer that question? What, did, what was what Washington trained as? Washington, uh, was he trained at? I mean, he had a military background. That's right. Um, I don't know what it was. He, uh, in, you in, you com- brought out an answer? I, I think I heard you say something. Surveyor. Surveyor, exactly. So among other things, Washington was surveying, and uh, you know that's the, what gets into these legal descriptions. Um, so we're, we're talking about these antiquarian books. You described what the cover, you describe the paper, you describe what you can see on the, on the side of the paper, sometimes the gilding and the, and the, the gold. Uh, have you had any with actual gold as opposed to just gold color on the gilding? No, they are gold. The, 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 the uh, early books are, are gilt, I and mean, they put gold leaf on them. So it's real gold leaf on some of those books. Oh, yeah, on all, all, everything. There was, there was no... I mean, the, the really, really, really cheap ones are, are maybe painted yellow, but that's <laughs> big difference. There's a big difference. And, some, and sometimes the guilt is heavier than other times. Sometimes the guilt is um, very heavy and sometimes it's really light, but they're all guilt. They're all, so the question I'm about to ask you, I've asked archivists from research universities, because as, as Mac knows, and Manny, I'm calling you different names tonight, Mac or Manny, but um, you know, I, I've gone to different research universities because I delve in these primary sources when I'm researching on whatever the historical topic is in my every time. So I've asked the, the archivists, you know, how do you make sure you store and properly take care of some of these old books? And the irony is that it's better quality paper than the modern books today. So I'm going to ask William, as the president of the Florida Antiquarian Booksellers Association, if someone wants to buy one of these books, how do you properly store it so that uh, you preserve it as opposed to uh, you know letting nature take its course? Well, the, the most important thing is moisture. I, I, I tell people, treat a book like you treat a person. Uh, just don't give them a bath. It's, it's important to keep them dry within some um, limits of temperature and keep them out of the sun. That's the only thing you really have to do. And, and keep them in some kind of... Um, Orders they're happy with that. We don't have them sitting sideways on a shelf or something of that nature. Sun is the biggest, uh, sun and moisture are the biggest problems. And, uh, when you have moisture, you also invite creatures, which are the third big problem. And, and uh, bugs and things love these books, so it's important to keep your house free of, uh, free of bugs. And, and that's sometimes more difficult than people think. If you're, if you're sitting at your library and eating a, a not a little taco or something. One small piece of crumb falls on the floor, you can't see it. It's a feast for these creatures. So once you invite them in your house, and that's how you do it, it's, it's dangerous. So my my advice is no sun, uh, not too much moisture, and, and try your best to keep um, um, creatures away from them. They're pretty durable. They are pretty durable. I'm going to give an example, and I've seen this in some of the books I have, which is um, 
and you know that these are old books, and as you said, it's rag paper. But uh, sometimes you'll see little holes that yeah. go through the book, and uh, to tell us when you see those little holes, uh, what are we talking about? Bookworms, literally. I mean, they, they're, they're worms that eat uh, through the paper. You can, you can trace them from one end of the book to the other, and sometimes they'll, they can destroy a book. I mean, they, they'll, they'll as long as they can. It's just a matter of uh, holes for the book back and forth. And they, they seem to like to be in certain books that aren't moved at all. So a book is in some place for a long time, and, uh, and there's no uh, preventative measures. It's, it's uh, like a big uh, handbook sitting I'm going to tell a real quick story involving Jefferson because that's consistent with you know this time period we're talking about. And uh, Jefferson was a lover of books, and he developed at his uh, plantation in Virginia an extensive library, and he was always traveling and buying books wherever he went, including law books, which is my area of specialty. So uh, there was a famous professor from University of Virginia, and actually he wasn't born in America. His name is Thomas Cooper. And if anyone Googles Thomas Cooper, Cooper's a very interesting fellow. And Cooper uh, wanted to be able to publish Virginia at the time, was the largest state. And one of the problems was that if the acts of the legislature were only done on a couple years at a time, if a lawyer wanted to research the law, they had to track down. It was very difficult to really thoroughly research something because the books weren't organized and they weren't codified as an entire collection of books, of law books. So it was sort of hit and miss what the lawyers had access to. But Jefferson had a complete set going back to the colonial times, and that was a problem. If you couldn't research the law all the way back in time, there would be gaps in the knowledge. So what Thomas Cooper did, and this is really after America became its own country, you saw this movement, and now I'm on the subject of legal books, but there was this movement to codify the law, and otherwise, in other words, to publish altogether all of the laws from the beginning of the colony through becoming a state, so people could see it all in the same collection, if you will, rather than the scattershot all over the map. So what's the point? The point is that Thomas Cooper, in order to compile, and it was, I think, done through the Virginia legislature, authorized Cooper to do it, uh, Thomas Jefferson had better collection of the law books than the Virginia legislature had. So Thomas Cooper went out, when I say drove out, by carriage, went out to uh, Mon uh, Monticello uh, to borrow from Jefferson's library so he could com compile the complete set of Virginia legal history. And uh, he asked Jefferson if he could take some of the books with him. And the answer was no, because they were, you know, so delicate, some of them, because of the weather. And remember, this is before you had indoor heating, and this is before you had, uh, you know, the conveniences that we take for granted today. So Jefferson was worried that his, his particular law, law books might get destroyed if they were transported. So Cooper had to go out to Monticello to use the books and copy them down uh, rather than uh, transport them. But um, so I'm wondering, have you seen any Jeffersons coming through your, your office or uh, some of the Virginia books? Yeah, I, I had uh, History of Virginia with the nice mountain um, a couple of years ago. So the readers or listeners on the radio don't necessarily know uh, when you say the History of Virginia, who wrote the History of Virginia? Jefferson. So Jefferson wasn't just a president. He wasn't just a founding father and a governor. He wasn't just the president of the University of Virginia. He was also yeah. an author. And he wrote the History of Virginia. And what was the title of it again? The History of Virginia. I'm pretty sure, yeah. It was... Uh... It was, uh, I think it might have been written in France. The first edition of it uh, is actually in French. Uh, that I did not know, and you've, you've seen one come through your shop. Yeah, yeah, I had a nice one uh, uh, about 10 years ago or so. And how much did it sell for? 
the capital. I'm I'm enjoying capitalism here. It was about 6000 at that time. Wow. Yeah, that's where the audience uh, gets really enthusiastic when they see the, the value that people are willing to pay for these. Or otherwise, it's just, you know, like a stale history note. But the truth is, it's these are assets. These are these are fantastic, uh, expensive heirlooms. You know, this is some this is real deal stuff that people are uh, fascinated by. You know, what I like is you can, you can buy... This is a 1794 book. You can buy. It's by Thomas Jefferson. It's on Virginia. It's got a map of Virginia. It's fabulous. As an investment of sorts, I and mean, if you if you pay, what you consider to be a good price for it, you can you can take that. If you pay five or six or seven or ten thousand, you can instead of book stock, you can look at it and use uh, it if you want to. You can really appreciate it. Make sure you insure it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get wet. And there are there are insurance companies that uh, will take on something like that. Yeah, yeah, they're they're specialty companies too. They they, they specialize in, in um, antiques and collectibles and things of that nature. And Manny, I'm comparing today with the stock market, and the Dow was down 2,000 points today. You're not going to. I'll ask it as a question to William. Do you see that kind of volatility that you just saw today in the stock market with these collectibles and the, the antiquarian books? No, not at all. Well, not. Not abruptly. You, you see it over the period. If we have a long recession, uh, sales, there's no doubt in the book world, sales do go down. Well, you, you'll start seeing people selling stuff selling stuff more than buying stuff. I don't know. I don't think that that... I didn't see... I've been in the business many, many years, and I don't see that. I see... I don't see... It's odd. The people that have money are just more conservative when there's a recession. They, they don't need to sell anything, necessarily. Thought 
to be an island, and it's shown to be an island, even though before that it wasn't an island. Before 1650, it was always shown as part of the American landmass, but then by some mistake, from 1650 to 1750, it was shown as an island. What happened was uh, a Spanish priest uh, decided it was an island, and he sent a letter to the um, government of Spain, but the letter was intercepted by Dutch uh, pirates and taken to the Netherlands, and they made the discovery, as it were, that California was an island, so they portrayed it as an island, and then the British copied that, and before you knew it, out of nothing, it became a huge island, but the, it had the entire east coast all delineated, and bizarre, but it was totally fictitious. But what is the most expensive map that you've seen go up on auction? But maps of the world or maps of the United States? Uh, the world maps go. Well, I, I don't know. I would say it depends. There are some world maps that are only like seven or eight or ten thousand dollars, and they go back in some cases to the sixteenth um, century, fifteen forty, fifteen fifty. There's only six or seven thousand. I would think the maps yeah, of the Marco Polo. Pardon? I would think the maps of the uh, that would be give give some intrigue to the Marco Polo voyages uh, would go for some money. No. Yeah, yeah. It, it, again, it's, it's all it's it's a matter of rarity and desirability. So if, if a map is really common, even though it's a fabulous map, it may not be that valuable. Whereas if it's desirable and uncommon, it can be very valuable. It's a formula that you could really apply to that. I'm, I'm going to give you some... Sorry to interrupt you. I'm, I'm going to give some examples going back to our Hamilton exhibit from last year at NOVA. And uh, because we were trying to make the point that Hamilton was not born in America, he was an immigrant who comes to America and becomes the right-hand man to Washington, that Hamilton you know, becomes the most powerful and most important, in my opinion, cabinet official ever in American history. So uh, what, how do we show that Hamilton was an immigrant? And William was nice enough to loan to Nova for this exhibit some maps of the Caribbean. Now, this is during yeah. the British time period. So uh, if you wanted to speak real briefly about uh, some of the maps that we had on loan uh, for that exhibition. Oh, yeah. We, we had Slinger's map of uh, all of America, the North and the South. Uh, 70, I think it was 1763, and then we had um, a map that was primarily the South part of America that was, um, uh, I forget what it was, maybe. about that period, but during Hamilton's lifetime, it, it showed uh, the island off the coast of America. So this is before America was the United States of America. This is when it was colonial America. Yeah. Yeah. And I like to point out that when you look at some of these old maps, it, it literally is a story. I could look at some of these for hours because if, you know. Well, you can. Yeah, and the more familiar you are with them, the more uh, engrossing they become. You can see little, little details that other people don't see. The more you know the history, the more you can appreciate them too. And, and some things are. You look at them and you, you've got to wonder what's going on. At one time, there was a map of Florida that had a mountain range going all the way up and down the middle of the state. <laughs> and there are other maps of Florida that show it's, it's fully as an archipelago. Um, all the islands delineated uh, with coastlines. And it's bizarre. Bizarre. It's fun, though. Cause you have to think back, if you're, if you're, if you're uh, living in 1753 and you're looking at this map, this is what you envision 
Florida or California or to be like. You know, that's, what you, that's the only thing you have, and it's totally wrong. And, of course, at the time, the mapmakers were working with the best information they had, but they had reasons to get it as accurate as they could, because some of them were used by the military, and some of the most important mapmakers were working for the British Navy. Um, yes. I'm going to ask you about um, some other terminology, and I hate throwing out new terms for people who have not heard these before, but it's a good way to learn. So, um, and, and people have different definitions, but ephemera. If I were to ask you what ephemera is and what's some of the most valuable ephemera that's come through your shop, what is ephemera? Oh, I love ephemera. I think that's where the antiquarian book dealers are going because that's the only thing that's left that's um, pretty much rare. Ephemera is simply uh, things that are ephemeral, things that are uh, printed typically with things of little value when they're created. So it's something that's a a throwaway, a giveaway, an expendable. So uh, a ticket to a theater or, for example, the ticket to um, a toy theater. Uh, yeah, when, when when Lincoln was assassinated? Yeah, that would be, that was, at the time, it was, it, 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 you would throw it away, right? If you do it. Oh, my gosh, whoever kept it all this time. <laughs> that must be, uh, what would that go for? That would be incredible. Yeah, I don't know what that. I never had that, but I'm, I'm just saying it's, it's, it, 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 it falls under ephemera. It's just something that wasn't meant to be valuable. It wasn't meant to appreciate. It was meant to be tossed. So in, in some ways, in some ways, these things have become much more valuable. You can have a, you can have, for example, you can have a Vogue magazine published in 1920. Maybe they published 300,000 copies of this one magazine. They did it for two weeks. But try to find like a May 1920 vote, any place, any place in the world. I mean, I, I, the odds are you won't find one. If you do, it'll be very expensive. But if you, if, you, if you're looking for a book, which is meant to be permanent, published May 1920, so if you're targeting a novel or something, you can find a dozen copies. They're out there, and that, that was only maybe 5,000 copies printed. It's a, it's, it's a fascinating field. It's, it's, it's a growing field in some ways, not because there is so much ephemera that it's... Uh, the big libraries, libraries in general, they have everything in the world that they want, but they, have, they want things that they don't have. And the only thing they don't have are ephemeral things because they never collected them before. So suddenly, things that weren't thought to be, you know, you, um, I just sold a, a, a journal from a fellow in Burma that he had kept, that, that, uh, he bought because it was unique. No one else had this journal. It was, uh, oh, how about the newspaper of the day of Hiroshima? No, a nuclear newspaper, and you pay overpay for it. And then your house, and then your house lights up like a Christmas tree. You bring it home, honey. I just bought the newspaper for Hiroshima. Honey, why is it glowing? Oh God. <laughs> well, the thing, another thing that's a little bit stranger. Uh, some things. This uh, uh, this is odd because, for example. Life magazine is made to be expendable. You buy it, you read it per week, and you throw it away. But when Kennedy was assassinated, they published it, and everybody kept it. So one of the least valuable life magazines in the entire world is the Kennedy issue, because everybody kept it. The issue before that's more valuable, and the issue after that's more valuable. Not that they're a lot of money, but, you know, they're more valuable than one that everybody kept it. That's pretty funny. With, with the pair, uh, Playboy magazine, the Mel Monroe issue is uh, much more common than the one before it and the one after it. 
because no one kept it. The last question I'm going to ask you, I actually wanted to do two more questions. I want to talk about some of the organizations we mentioned at the beginning, but I also want to give a little bit of the history of the way publishing worked in America. And back then, first of all, a broadsheet, uh, so let me ask you this way, what, what is a broadsheet? It's just been vertical, basically, that was uh, tacked up to a uh, side of a building. Or, uh, they, they were kiosk times or polls or whatever that uh, advertised certain things. They were distributed, for that matter, too. They could be handed out to advertise them. Today we were told a handbill that you'd see, you know, an advertisement. So, so back in the day, it was expensive to publish a book, uh, because, especially legal books, which is my area, because there weren't that many people that were buying them. So before a publisher would spend the money to publish a book, they'd have to make sure there were enough people who were going to buy it. This is dealing with legal books. So they would publish the broadsides. People would commit in advance that, yes, uh, you have to get enough people who are willing to buy it, enough lawyers from around the state, then, uh, then they would commit to do it. So I'm going to ask you the subscriber list. And I have some old, these are old legal books that have subscriber lists in the back. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us, talk to us about what a subscriber list is. And then I'm going to tell you about one of the books that I have. So, well, with a lot of books, even Mark Twain and things of that nature, they would, they would hire kids to go around and uh, sell subscriptions for the book. So they would, and this was done with Bibles and other, other books as well, they would, they would take um, the book, they would take the, the, put some illustrations in, some of the text in, uh, things that make you want to buy it, they would, they would bind it nicely, and then in the back they would have a <clears throat> pages for you to sign up to write the book, so the boy would bring the book to your house and he'd show you uh, the one that he had in it, and then he, op- he would open up the cover and you, would, you could choose different buttons, you could have Morocco binding, you leather binding, you cloth binding gilded, blah, 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 and, and you could choose all these things, and, and then you'd sign your name at the back and, and uh, give them a deposit, and that would be your subscription. And then before that, in, in uh, the 18th century, the subscribers would be someone that basically said they bought the book beforehand, and they, they would be honored when the book was published, because when the book was published, it would list the subscribers that had actually bought it before. That's my experience with it. So I'm going to give you the quick example, and I'm going to encourage people, go to statutesandstories.com, because I have blogged, and I'm pulling it up right now so I can describe it. But um, so for Virginia, which, again, was the largest state during the colonial period, and the when we started creating American laws for the first time, we're not colonial, we're not British, we're creating our own law. And um, my point is that uh, when they did this for Virginia, um, they would get a subscriber list. People would have to subscribe. They paid the deposit, as you described it. And if enough people paid the deposit, then the publisher would print it. So the subscriber list for the first law book in American history, which is the first American law book, has in a subscriber list Jefferson and some other names that people will remember. And, you know, for purposes of lawyer advertising, you know, if, if your name wasn't in the subscriber list, people might ask, well, why, why didn't you subscribe? And people would want to subscribe, so in a way it was advertising for them. So I, I encourage folks, if you have a moment, if you want to see examples, go to the Statutes and Stories website, and I, I think I also wrote some of the entries on Wikipedia dealing with this subject, um, but you can oh. read all about the, the early history of uh, how legal publishing worked, which again is my field. Uh, so the, the, the book I'm talking about is called The New Virginia Justice by William Waller Henning, 
And uh, this is a book where Jefferson is one of the subscribers. So that 1795 first edition, uh, which is a book that one of these days, if I ever get around to it, if I can get a good price on it, is something I'm looking for. Um, but uh, that's Henning's Laws of, uh, sorry, that's Henning's, it's called The Justice of the Peace. The title is The New Virginia Justice. And uh, you've got just a who's who of, uh, of, of Virginia founding fathers and mothers, if you will, that are on that subscriber list. So this is an example of how these, these books are history. And there's more to are it. Females? I'm sorry? Are there females on the list? I'm trying to be uh, politically correct. So the vast majority, in fact, probably most, if not all, of the subscribers were men. But I'm okay. sure there were some women who were who were reading it. Uh, but uh, and I, I've got pictures of, of the subscriber list so people can see. But you know, the Jeffersons and the Madisons, and uh, you know, they would break it down by state of the people who bought the book, who subscribed. And uh, this is how early legal publishing worked. Uh, so enough with the law part of it. Um, but let me ask you about some of the organizations that we started with. So. If you wanted to put in a plug, William, for the Florida Antiquarian Booksellers Association, because you're the president, or any of the other names that we mentioned, the International League of Booksellers, um, well, what is the difference between buying a book from a member of these associations versus just buying it uh, online through a uh, through an eBay if you see something on a listing on Amazon, for example, as opposed to buying it from a registered dealer? Well, eBay is wild west. Nothing can be trusted. I mean. We all buy things on eBay, but it's, it's very, very, very difficult. And things are so-called tried, and that's also the case with the listing search, like ABE uh, is just rife with errors and misinformation and almost subterfuge. So I would recommend that if you're looking on a, a site that lists multiple dealers, that you look for uh, a dealer that has ABAA after the name or ILAB. ABAA is a... American Bookstore Cultures in America and IIT is in Massachusetts. So um, those people have a very high ethical code. They're, they don't make mistakes. If, they, if, if, if something's wrong, they correct it. But those people are legitimate. They're embedded. They, they, it's hard to get into the organization. They're, um, that's what you want. It's, I mean, if you're not sure about a book, you see you're buying a book for any amount of money, really, $10 or $10,000. Well, more than $10,000, I've got to say that you, you want something you can trust, and that ABAA is something you, you can trust. It's an organization that's, um, to me, it's the organization in America for including uh, book If you don't belong to that, then, well, I should say, well, it's good to belong to that. If you don't belong to that, there might be some questions that you should William, I've learned a lot today, and it was an opportunity for me to learn tonight. So I want to thank you for uh, for the tutorial that you put on today. And uh, and Mac, do you have any other questions before we sign off? Um, I want you all to uh, uh, basically donate to uh, Blink Radio so I can buy stuff uh, at the Antiquarium. <laughs> oh, I can't say that over the air. I'm sorry. Uh, that was just a joke. And we're a nonprofit organization, a 501c3 to teach people wonderful things like tonight. So I thank you both for for exposing our audience to the, the beautiful world of uh, old stuff. And uh, what's that What's that word you guys used? Uh, uh, that's a new word for me. Uh, when something is... Yes. Yes, when, th- when something becomes valuable just because. And it wasn't intended to. No. And ephemera. Uh, that's so, the word. No. To be continued for another evening. But thanks, everybody. Uh, okay. Th- this right. is this is the end of the statues and stories show. Thank you, William, for for your visit. Hopefully, we'll have you soon. And you're listening to WSQF Blink Radio. Stay free, my friends.